Hello everyone, I am Gui Valente and this is the Valente Brothers Podcast. Once again, I'm joined by Pedro Valente. Thank you, Gui. Thank you everyone for watching. It's great to be here. And Joaquim Valente. Hello everyone. Very happy to be here today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, all of you. Today we're going to talk about sparring, jiu-jitsu and sparring. We're going to talk about the history of this very important element of training. We're going to talk about the culture and everything about sparring. Pedro, where does this come from, the history of sparring? Well, I think that's extremely difficult to pinpoint. Because even if we look at animals in the wild, you will see them sparring. You'll see them playing, wrestling each other. That's almost innate, not only to human beings, but to animals in the wild, to mammals. You see how bears grapple each other. You see kangaroos, how they fight each other. And many times, it is not an expression of combat. Many times, it is a game that even children, even the young animals, play with each other. Horseplay sometimes. Correct. Rough housing, as they say in English. And there are many studies, psychological studies, of how this can benefit children in many ways. Because like the first thing that comes into mind when you said nature and, uh, and sparring, I thought about a fight. But that's not exactly what we mean by sparring, correct? Correct. And there even horseplay or rough housing. Correct, correct. Sometimes a father playing with a son, right? In the living room, on the carpet. And we grew up, like you said, with, with dogs, many dogs at our home in Brazil. And everyone who has been around dogs, especially the young ones, the puppies, né? they're always playing like that. And sometimes it looks like they're fighting, but they're not. And even biting each other and using um, their bodies and just rolling. Uh, cats, the same thing. And like you said, most animals, mammals, have that, share that characteristic. Correct. And, and I think it's pretty safe to assume that as combat arts develop, sparring is a natural way to train those um, systems. Because even without any technique, you already see that um, between human beings, between children, the schoolyard, I think it is obvious that when people are training for fighting that they're going to engage in that type of, of safe um, practice in order to develop their skills with resistance. This is very connected to the history of jiu-jitsu. Yes. As today, many historians attribute the development of sparring to Jigoro Kano, the famous Japanese jiu-jitsu practitioner that is credited for developing Kodokan Judo, his style of jiu-jitsu that became uh, world-renowned as Kodokan Judo. Do you believe that is accurate? I think there's some confusion. Did he develop sparring? What do we mean by develop? Did he organize sparring? Did he standardize sparring? Did he remove certain dangerous elements and create a, a form of sparring, a specific way of sparring? Yes, not on his own. It was an effort, um, not only by him and the Kodokan, but also the Butokukai and other organizations in Japan who were all trying to create a, a safe way for practitioners of jiu-jitsu not only to, to train amongst themselves, but also to compete as jiu-jitsu more and more became a sport in Japan, or judo. At that time, the beginning of the 20th century, the names were used interchangeably. So, handori, that's the Japanese term, word for sparring. What does it mean? Yeah, as, as other kanji um, words... It's the, the word randori, randori, is comprised of characters, one of them meaning riot, war, disorder, chaos. And the other means to catch or capture. 
the combination of those characters, disorder, chaos, riot, war, with catching, capture, taking, fetching, that's Randori. And it is easy to understand because the distinction is between Randori and Kata training. Kata training is technical training. In Kata, you have an Uki and a Tori. And the objective is for there to be harmony between both. They are practicing a technique in a way where there is no resistance and they're trying to perform the technique to the best of their ability and actually the Wookiee who's receiving the technique is assisting and helping and trying to create harmony so that the Tori can execute the technique perfectly and thus learn the skill and practice the skill. And that's a very important way of training. Randori is the opposite. Instead of having an Uki and a Tori, you have two Tories. So both are trying to take at the same time. Both are trying to attack at the same time and defend. It's a training in attack and defense, but there is no choreography. There's no predetermined outcome. They're both trying to compete with each other. That's where competition arises between two individuals. And this idea of unpredictability, chaos, you don't know what's going to happen. You have to adapt to whatever happens. And there's so many lessons to be learned, not just technical, but in your demeanor, mental demeanor, physical demeanor, how to deal with pressure, how to deal with someone trying to hurt you, someone trying to attack you. And that's the importance of randori or spying. Now, you talked about how we agree, based on the information that we currently have, that Jigoro Kano, Japanese judo master, he organized sparring, he organized randori so that the style that he was proposing could be practiced. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, you also mentioned that he selected some moves that he considered to be dangerous and he made sure to create a very safe system. Now, how do you do that and still maintain the fighting, the self-defense approach, the survival approach, without changing the art's objective? That's a great question. Firstly, we must say that, I think it's important to say, that sparring was practiced in jiu-jitsu before. Some people, that's where the confusion comes up. Some people believe that Jigoro Kano invented sparring in jiu-jitsu and that there was no sparring in jiu-jitsu before Jigoro Kano. That's and that's true. where And that's where we were going. Because, as you mentioned, even with the animals, even with the instinct of just playing and roughhousing, probably from the beginning of times with humans. But not just that. Even if you look at Jigoro Kano's own accounts of how he learned jiu-jitsu, he was sparring with his teachers. So it doesn't make any sense to say that Jigoro Kano created, created sparring. sparring if he was sparring with his teachers when he was learning. What there he created was a, a certain way of sparring with the objective based on his preferences of the different elements of Jiu-Jitsu. Correct. And in this case, it was more the stand-up. And that's something that's still happening today. When they discuss, should we allow heel hooks or not? Some people allow heel hooks, others don't. Or I think whoever is, is running a school is going to have to select which techniques are allowed, which techniques are not allowed in competition. You're going to have different organizations um, deciding how to train, how to practice. And Jigoro Kano did that same thing, but he did it in a pivotal time where Japan was going through a, a great transformation. And so there was a necessity to establish new ways of doing things. And, and he was bringing a lot of the European and Western approach to physical education and trying to combine that with the traditional Japanese martial arts and the ways of training of the samurai warriors. Joaquin, in Brazil, as we were growing up, jiu-jitsu, of course, was always based on the art of adaptability, yielding flexibility. However, especially in your generation already in the the late 90s, early 2000s, the focus was primarily on sparring. Would you agree? 
yes, you know, sparring was really not only something that was focused on a big part of the class was focused on sparring, but also it was a great way, I think, for people to demonstrate their abilities. When I say a great way, that's what it was used at the time to really determine how well a practitioner was doing in the art of jiu-jitsu. And as we know many times, someone can be very good in sparring, but it doesn't mean that they're, they're the most technical person. So I was actually looking at a quote by Jigoro Kano, in which he talks, in, in Randori, we learn to employ the principle of maximum efficiency, even when we could easily overpower an opponent. Indeed, it is much more impressive to beat an opponent with proper technique than with the use of brute force. And I think that's really the difference between jiu-jitsu and wrestling, for example. Correct. Even President Teddy Roosevelt, when he described the difference between jiu-jitsu and wrestling, he mentioned that. And so even though there is technique in wrestling, and I cannot deny that, but in wrestling it is okay to use strength. And in jiu-jitsu the objective is to minimize the use of strength the objective is to be as efficient as possible. And what happened in Brazil? Now, we jumped all the way to the late uh, 90s and early 2000s. Did that also happen in Japan? The focus on sparring? Yes, I can even um, quote Jigoro Kano as he's, he was very preoccupied with that. He said that it is important to practice both randori and kata. And then he said, and I'm quoting Jigoro Kano, kata, only sorry, technical kata, training. Technical or technical training. Drilling is part of kata, you yes, would say? Yes. Uchikomi yes. is part of kata, a little different. Yes, but, but kata is, is when, he when he's, obviously you have the kata forms, the pre-organized, pre-arranged forms, but when he's talking about kata training, he's, the talk broader, the broader he's talking about technical meaning. training without resistance. When you collaborate with each other. You collaborate with each other. And, and he said that only doing randori limited the practitioner's coherent understanding of the principles of attack and defense. That in order to understand the principles, you cannot only focus on sparring that through technical training, you learn the principles. And it's interesting that Jigoro Kano was also pointing out, and that's something that Grandmaster Edo always did, and there are many similarities between the two, by the way. But he says, always remember that Randori is training in the art of attack and defense. In a martial art, it is essential to train the body to move freely, to counter punching and kicking attacks and to nurture the ability to react quickly and appropriately. A judo bout must be treated as real combat, and the immediate goal is to win. Be prepared at all times. That changed over time. In judo, yes. And in jiu-jitsu jiu also. Well. In jiu-jitsu also, but it's interesting to see that Jigoro Kano, Jigoro Kano's original goal was for Rendori and for sparring to be as close to a real fight as possible. In another quote by Jigoro Kano, he said, I believe that it is not impossible to devise a way of engaging in randori and bouts which include striking techniques, atemiwaza, as long as it is formulated incrementally, following intensive investigation. However, it is more difficult to determine the relative merits of striking compared to throwing or pinning the opponent down. So you see that there was an interest by him of including strikes, but he just didn't know the best way to do it in a safe way. Yes, but I think there's two changes. There's a change of, you know, sparring not including strikes and not being as realistic as possible for a street confrontation, but then there's also the change of sparring becoming something where, you know, you're not trying to be as maybe as efficient as possible because of competition, because of weight divisions and things that Efficient in the sense of the overuse of force and exactly. physicality. 
where physicality will count more and you don't have to worry about physicality counting less because you're fighting against you're going against someone who is more or less your size your weight so that's a change that i think also happened in judo and both jiu-jitsu because of the circumstances and the goals which people were training for there's no question and the more you focus on the sport development the more you treat jiu-jitsu as a competition practice the more this is going to happen because the objective becomes to win that competition and if strength helps you win then you're going to use it because you're not trying to as he said coherently develop principles of attack and defense you're trying to win a tournament so before and of course to really understand the development of jiu-jitsu the history of jiu-jitsu it's very important to study the history of Japan, right? Japan was um, built upon civil war, constant battle among the different clans, the different regions of Japan. And eventually, there was a peaceful time. And that peaceful time is really when jujitsu something very close to what we know today, developed. And maybe there is also a connection as far as why jiu-jitsu and grappling, uh, maybe they removed the weapons, they definitely re removed the armor that the samurai carried, and maybe that explains, it's just a theory, a little bit of the development of jiu-jitsu and the grappling aspect. But we have to remember that jiu-jitsu for the samurai, was very similar to what today, combatives and even very much influenced still by jiu-jitsu, is for a soldier, for a combatant, a modern combatant. It's just a piece, of course. There are weapons, there are many other skills that uh, soldiers uh, have to possess. However, the objective of jiu-jitsu was to enhance that soldier's ability to survive, to fight in combat, in real life and death situations. Now, I believe that Jigoro Kano and others, they attempted to balance trying to keep that essence alive while creating a sport that had rules. And we know that judo was influenced even by wrestling, mm -hmm. right? European wrestling in many ways, especially in its competitive nature. And Jigoro Kano himself, years later, observed that the trajectory of his uh, plan, of what he envisioned, was not exactly what he imagined, what he wanted. And we saw the same thing happen in Brazil. And I think it would be very good for our audience for us to discuss a little bit, why is that? Why did that happen specifically, in your opinion, Pedro? Well, I think that hindsight is always twenty twenty, right? It's easy for us to see what happened. Even back then, they were already discussing some of these consequences, right? They were saying that because of the focus on competition, right? it's mentioned here, as a consequence, they tended to neglect. It says, in the early decades of the 20th century, Kodokan trainees became more interested in competing and randori. As a consequence, they tended to neglect kata training, and accordingly, the study of striking techniques started to decline in judo. So that's a natural consequence, because your Technical training is going gonna, is gonna to be based on what your objective is. And if your objective is to compete, that's going to affect how you train. And you're going to start neglecting any training that is not going to be applied in your competition, in, your, what, in, in whatever it is that you're training for. Right? So in the beginning, I think both Jigoro Kana and the Gracie brothers, Grandmasters Carlos and Helio Gracie, I think they felt that it was possible to do both at the same time. 
that you could create a sport for people to compete and given all the benefits of, of, of athletic competition. And before that, I think it's worth mentioning that Carlos Grace, Grandmasters Carlos, especially Carlos, and Elio fought very hard not to accept the rules that were being implemented by the Japanese. And especially when it came to time limitations and the limitations of, of the rules, many of the rules. Very interesting that you say that and it, it brings something to mind that is very interesting. I think you can talk about this more than I can. I don't think that Jigoro Kano, that his main objective was to create a sport. I think that there was a pressure of the time. And you have to study the history of sports and what was happening at that time. When did the Gracie brothers create the federation? In the 1960s. And it's important, I think, historically to understand what was happening at that time, specifically when it comes to the history of sports and the pressures that were involved, especially with judo becoming part of the Olympic Games in 1964. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Jiu-Jitsu Federation was created three years after judo was introduced as an Olympic sport. The World Championship of Judo was, was held in Rio. Well, when did the Kodokan start? 1882. 1882. The, the first Olympic Games of the modern era, I believe, happened in 1896. I believe I'm right because it was in 96 in Atlanta that I think the 100-year anniversary of the Olympic Games was celebrated, the modern Olympics. So there you go. Jigoro Kano, we know, was very much interested in everything that had to do with the West, not only him, but Japan. That's exactly what was happening in the Meiji era. It was an enlightenment period for the Japanese. Um, I think they were forced to, to, to do that, right? Yeah, in the beginning with, with uh, Commodore Perry, United States Navy, really forcing the Japanese to open up. But, if, but eventually, of course, the society, especially the Tokyo society, embraced the West, and there was a, a, a huge um, process of Japanese students going to Europe and even to the United States. So undoubtedly, I think there is a huge influence. Yeah, and Jigoro Kano also understood how sports can bring people together. And he wanted for jiu-jitsu, or judo as he called it, to be spread around the world and for people to, for nations to come together and for peoples of different races, different creeds to come together. Jigoro Kano believed in that, bringing people together through judo. And he felt that through a sport, that would be more possible. But he never intended for the martial principles, the combat principles. And you see, as I read before, that he never intended for those to be lost. And he was trying to find a way to do both. But now, over 100 years later, we can see that it didn't work. And you know what's also very interesting is that what Jigoro Kano had to fight very hard to change was the reputation of jiu-jitsu. And that's actually one of the other reasons uh, as far as our belief that we cannot credit Jigoro Kano for creating handori or sparring or competitive grappling training is that based on some of the, the passages and some of the information that we have been able to, to attain over the last few years in our research, that was happening in Japan. Actually, Jigoro Kano had to, we call it rebrand, but he had to bring back also the philosophy, and that's why he changed the name from Jiu-Jitsu, the way Jitsu, the other way around, Jitsu being the way, actually technique, to Do, which is the way. And why the way? Why Judo? Why the way of yielding flexibility or of adaptability? Because he wanted to bring back the philosophy. That's a very important point because a lot of people think that he changed the name because he invented new techniques or because he was... The name was actually was used already. It had been used had already. Had been used. And, and he claimed that the reason why he picked a name that had been used because it didn't feel like he was creating something new. But the only reason why he changed the name was to, to say that we're doing jiu-jitsu but with a philosophy. 
with an organized philosophy, with a philosophy that he felt was part of jiu-jitsu before. And had been lost. And had been lost. Because the emphasis was too much on just duels and challenge matches yeah. and just Even fighting. matches for entertainment, for matches money. Matches for entertainment. As the Japanese lost their position in society when the Japan, samurais. The samurai, when there was a change from the Edo period to the Meiji Restoration, the samurai who had their position, lost their position, including their, um, their financial benefits, and they had to, to find ways to, to survive, and among them was uh, fighting for you know, prize money, which um, was something that Jigoro Kano really worked hard to, to change in Japan. Um, so and, already, and already in the 1930s, there's a, a very um, interesting letter that I just pulled up here, um, which was written by Jigoro Kano to Koizumi, Gunji Koizumi, who is one of the, the pioneers of, of judo, jiu-jitsu in England. And, and they're asking him about, the, about judo becoming an Olympic sport. And he says, my view on the matter at present is rather passive. If it be the desire of other member countries, I have no objection, but I do not feel inclined to take any initiative. For one thing, judo in reality is not a mere sport or game. I regard it as a means for personal cultural attainment. Only one of the forms of judo training, so-called randori or free practice, can be, classed, can be classed as a form of sport. Certainly, to some extent, the same may be said of boxing and fencing, but today they are practiced and conducted as sports, purely. Then the Olympic Games are so strongly flavored with nationalism and competition that it is possible to be influenced by it, for judo to be influenced by it, and to develop contest judo, a retrograde form as jiu-jitsu was before the Kodokan was founded. Very interesting. So... The Kodokan was founded with a purpose, but they ended up falling in the same, we can call it a trap. Yes. It is a trap because, and we could discuss the psychology behind it, and we have done this for the last many years here in our school, especially when we decided to, to remove ourselves from tournaments, from sportive tournaments, because of the, exactly the psychological aspect. If you're going to participate in tournaments, what is your objective? You want to win. You want to win. And if you want to win, and that is completely understandable, you will have to specialize yourself in those rules. And if you do anything outside of those rules, you are wasting time that your opponent might not be wasting. And for that reason, you're going to have a disadvantage. So I think that probably that's what happened in Japan. And definitely we saw this happening in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu culture. The schools that tried to do both eventually began to lose ground, space. Because the ones that said, you know what? We're not going to practice a headlock escape. We're not going to practice a knife defense. We're not going to practice anything that is not part of tournament jiu-jitsu because it's not going to help us win. They clearly had an advantage. So there's a term that comes to mind that you always use, training specificity or specialization. You're going to have more time to dedicate to a, to a, to a particular activity and that's going to give you an advantage over someone who is having to train in other areas that are not specifically um, involved in the tournament that you are participating in and that specialization goes even into sparring right because sparring can be done in different ways and this question is for pedro but Guy can also answer we spoke in the beginning about all the the positive elements that comes that comes from sparring right and all the the great techniques and 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 abilities benefits. and benefits that we take out from sparring but also i think there is sometimes a negative side to it when sparring is not done in the healthiest in a way possible. And uh, we, we try our best here at Valente Brothers 
to create sparring in a way where everyone can benefit from and everyone can feel comfortable. But I think it's important for us to talk some of, about some of the things that can happen in sparring and, and what can go wrong because I believe that... Yes, you know, that's why we like to study history so much because many times we try to reinvent the wheel. But over 100 years from ago, jiu-jitsu teachers were having the same issues and facing the same situations that we're facing today. So back at the time of the Kodokan, they talked about different modes of thought pertaining to sparring which can be categorized as follows. And they give two of them. Throwing or training, sorry, training in according with jiu-jitsu technical principles or training based on strength rather than technique. So they categorize sparring in these two ways. You train, your focus is on using technique or your focus is on using strength. And they explain that when you are a beginner, your technique is not going to be perfect and you're going to compensate with strength. I would add to that that strength works. If you're going against somebody who is smaller than you or same size and you use your strength, it's going to be effective. So if your objective in sparring is to win, then strength is going to always be used unless you're always sparring against guys who are much bigger and stronger than you. Then your strength would not work. But wouldn't you agree that by using just strength, yes, it will work, but you're going to add strength with the technical elements that you learn. But once you learn the technique, unless you're increasing your strength, you're going to plateau. Correct. And your ability to improve is not going to you know, really happen because you're not taking in elements that are so important like strategy, like efficiency and everything else that goes into jiu-jitsu. I agree. And we've seen so many practitioners, in addition to what you said, who are extremely effective when they fight guys their size or smaller. But then when they try to fight guys who are much bigger and stronger, they have a problem exactly because their technique is not so refined. Because they're used to relying on strength. Because why not use strength? Why not? Two reasons. Firstly, strength causes you to get tired faster. So economy of energy is extremely important in sparring. Now, when you say strength... And secondly, let me just finish the thought. Secondly, because when you use strength or when you rely on strength more than technique or when you compensate for a lack of technique with strength, to be more specific, then when you try to use it against somebody bigger and stronger, you're going to fail because you're relying on strength. And so that's the reason why it is important not to train based on strength rather than technique, but to train in accordance with jiu-jitsu technical principles, which doesn't mean that you don't use any strength. Because uh, Jigoro Kano says in another quote, another tenant of Handori is to apply just the right amount of force, never too much, Correct. never too little. All of us know of people who have failed to accomplish what they are said to do because of not properly gauging the amount of effort required. At one extreme, they will fall short of the mark. At the other, they do not know when to stop. And this is so common for a beginner to try to go for a move and then just to continue and continue and continue, even if that move is no longer available. Trying to force Trying it. to force it, using too much strength and not seeing the opportunity that most likely the resistance of that move not being available anymore is causing for another opportunity. Yeah, I wouldn't even use the word seeing, but feeling. Feeling, yeah. Because when you use too much strength, and Grandmaster Ed used to always say that, if you use too much strength, your body is so tense that it diminishes your ability to feel. Very interesting. And a good way to know that the person is not feeling is many times after sparring, asking them, what happened? How did you get caught? And most of the times, they don't even remember what happened or they will tell you something that is completely different because they were not being able to feel. Yeah, let me also say that and, and we're not... Go ahead. Yes, just to complement this point, 
it's talking about here they're talking about using strength and he says this is detrimental to the development of mechanically correct techniques and runs counter to the true principles of jiu-jitsu and then he adds another point which i think is important that is there is also great potential for injury when force is employed in the place of rational technique yeah that's very interesting actually i was going to touch on injury i think we can talk a little bit about it later but we're not saying that it's bad for you to be strong. It's not no. bad for you to be in shape. It's not bad for you to train in a very competitive way. You have to be intelligent. You have to be honest. Today, talking to one of our students, Jonas, he used that. You have to be honest with yourself. After class, I was discussing the concept of being very responsible when you're sparring not only with yourself, but also the responsibility you have with your training partner. We can go hard, we can really train at almost 100%, right? I, I say almost because we're not punching each other in the face. Um, we're not trying to elbow each other in the nose. So we can do that, but we have to always protect each other. That's very important. Now, I think we have to mention, and maybe this is one of the main problems with sparring, and it actually reminds me of, of something that we have discussed many times with students, especially visitors and friends of ours, and, and even sometimes this has been uh, the reason for a, a misconception in regards to a self-defense-focused jiu-jitsu school. Some people think that if you focus on self-defense, you don't spar. There's no handori. And this is not true. This is very far from reality. Well, there might be some schools that do that, even especially in other arts. But Correct. we believe that it would be incomplete. I'm talking about our sure. style, right? So, handori does not mean sport, uh, sport only. And self-defense or kata or drilling or technique training technical and collaboration, training. technical training does not mean self-defense Correct. in our style. It's a combination. There should be this combination. But the key is the objective. Because you could also do kata training, drilling, that is completely... Um, that goes in a completely different direction as far as your self-defense objectives, right? You could practice techniques that, are, that will make you vulnerable in a fight, but could be very positive, um, effective for sport competition and those rules. Let me ask you a question. A lot of people say it's very important. We've heard this before. When Grandmaster Elio advised us to stop going to tournaments, some people told us, I think it's a mistake. I think it's extremely important for students to compete. So my question is, and I believe there are some, what benefits Somewhat. are... Somewhat. What I'm going to say right now. Some, what benefits are there to tournaments that you cannot get from Randori? Well, well depends how you do Randori. Uh, I, I would on, the only benefit is increased pressure. Correct. Because adrenaline. Of adrenaline because of the audience and, and you having to perform stage fright. So for that reason, we devised ways here at Valente Brothers to create pressure for our students so they go through that experience. Correct. We but other than that, all the benefits of competition can be achieved with sparring, hard sparring, realistic sparring and in the school. The Correct. way we do it, because also, you know, playing devil's advocate here, but you could also say, you know, the unknown, right? When you're sparring in the school, you're always going against the same people that you always know and that you train with. In a competition, you're going to face someone who you've never seen before, and that also has an effect that could be positive. But that's why here at Valente Brothers, you know, when we do our, you know, challenges, we have people come from different of our schools that are affiliated to us, and they bring students, and we create that, and I think there's a positive you know, absolutely benefit yes. from that, and also the fact that it's not open mat. So students they come in and they have no idea who they're going to spar with. We're going to have to choose, and fortunately we've been able to develop our school for so many years that now we have so many different students 
with so many different body types and different technical styles, whereas when you come to the sparring class, you're going to be having a different experience yeah. every time. Now, I'm going to say something that might be a little controversial, but after so many years now of teaching and the, experience of, the experiences I've had also throughout my life and both analytical and practical experiences, I believe also that there is a, a over-focus or a exaggerated focus on the sparring element, like some of the masters said. That's only one of the elements of training, of jiu-jitsu. And it create maybe, because it creates a little bit of a, uh, we call it the glorification of the tough guy in the school. And I have seen individuals that are the best in sparring, even in sport jiu-jitsu competition, but who possess very little fighting, real fighting skills. So I think that it's all about your objective. If you want to be a sport jiu-jitsu champion, today especially, you can do that without necessarily preparing yourself to defend a slap on your face. There's nothing wrong with that. The same could it's be... It's not their goal. It's not their goal. And, and, and but I it's think important to be honest. It's important to be honest and to... And to know and, the difference. And to know the difference. I'm not saying that a, a sport jiu-jitsu uh, champion is not tough because it takes a lot of toughness to be a sport jiu-jitsu champion. The same way uh, a judo champion, the same way a rugby player, NFL linebacker. It doesn't even mean that a sport jiu-jitsu guy or a rugby player won't have a better chance in a fight against a layman of in the street. Of course. However, if they're not training certain specific techniques, they might be surprised by a slap, by... I a surprise attack in the street that they don't usually see in their training. I love this quote. Um, I think that even I have said it before in one of our videos and podcasts, but it's from Mark Twain. You guys know this. The best swordsman in the world doesn't need to fear the second best swordsman in the world. No. The person for him to be afraid of is some ignorant antagonist who has never had a sword in his hand before. He doesn't do the thing he ought to. So this is a huge part of self-defense and of how you spar. If you only spar someone who's going to try to pass your guard, and they can pass your guard easily, but if you only spar someone who's going to technically place one hand in your collar who's going to technically try to choke you, who's going to technically use an advanced mount position, an S mount, and set up an arm lock attack, a combination, a double attack, go for a triangle, that's not what's going to happen in a fight. It reminds me, Pedro, I don't think you were here, but we used to train boxing in a school many years ago when we moved to Miami, and we were there a few times training, and two professional fighters, remember that? They got into a fight. One of them actually became a world champion. And he had just, um, he had just um, won a, a, I think, a medal. I'm not going to say which medal was it, but a medal in the Olympic Games. And then he was transitioning into his professional career. And he was sparring. They were sparring. Our father was there as Our well. Our father, I think, was there. I think either I was there, I've heard the story so many times <laughs> that it makes me think that I so, was there. So two professional boxers... Sparring, technically beautiful. Something happened. They were upset at each other. It became a real fight. It became a real fight. The punches were thrown different. Yes. Not so much technique. And they immediately clinched and they started trying to take each other down and people then broke it apart. That was a huge lesson for us. Even professional fighters. When anger is involved. When anger, adrenaline, rage. and so many other rage and so many other variables are present, they will all play a huge part in how you behave. So, as I said before, I'm not taking anything away for, from sport jiu-jitsu or from any other sport, sportive combat. But there is a difference. And how you manage in your training protocols, in your training systems, how you manage the, the balance between, and then going back in history, the same question that great masters had, 
how much you're going to emphasize Handori, where naturally you're going to have to have some safety um, guidelines, and Kata, and the drills. Um, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not going to get into to the shooting world, but I'm sure there could be a, a huge discussion. Yeah, and, and knives and you know, improvised weapons that people can carry and all that goes into it. What we found is that it's important to have balance because you have two camps that argue with each other. You have some martial arts, they say, Randori is not realistic because of all the safety precautions. You're not eye gouging, you're not punching, you're not hitting, you're not biting. And so that is unrealistic, you shouldn't do that. And so all they do is they do drilling and, and simulations without resistance. And we feel that, that we respect that, but we feel that that is not complete in our opinion. Then you have the other camp, which claims that the only realistic way to train is sparring, that you have to spar and that's what it is, and you just grapple, grapple, and that's how you're going to be tough and that's how you learn how to fight. Just become a sport jiu-jitsu champion or a wrestling champion and that's the best self-defense. Pure grappling training, spar, 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 and that's all you need. We don't believe in that either because you're leaving out a lot of scenarios and a lot of attacks that might come your way and you're not developing technical responses. So what's our theory? Is that you need balance. Now, then people might say, well, so you can have balance. Compete. Compete. We, and, we then, should, and then work. And, and we should also be careful with the word compete, né? competition, because competition is key. We don't believe in, in, in progress without competition in all areas of life. We're talking about tournaments. Tournaments, yes. So people might say, go to tournaments, but still train the self-defense. That's what our forefathers believed in many ways. But what's the problem with that? Human beings are very competitive. And the moment you go to a tournament and you lose, you're going to want to win next time. And what's the best way to win? Training specificity. Total focus. Specialization. And then you're going to start neglecting the other parts. Yeah, there's no way around that. So that's But when you have Rendori in a school, then since there's no prize involved, there's no medal involved, then you can still train, but your focus and your goal is not to win that match. Your goal is to improve. Well, that's what we try. But what's the number one obstacle on the way for that? Ego. Ego. So that's, that's the question that I have. I think it's a great question for this conversation. What is the, according to you, both of you, and I think we can all have, because there are many, so we can all have different ones. But I'm going to ask both of you this question. What is the main goal of Randori? What is the goal for the student? What is the student trying to do when they're sparring? In my opinion, is the development of the art of adaptability. When we practice techniques, many times, you know, there's no surprise. We know what we're practicing. The uki will give the opportunity for the move to be done and the Tori will be doing the move. Once we get... What's, what's Uki and Tori, Pedro? Uki is the person receiving the technique. Tori is the person applying the technique. So once you get into, into Handori, you will have the chance to be able to do those techniques under a situation where so the constant surprise will be happening in both sides. And for that, you will have to learn to reduce the amount of strength, hopefully, that you will be able to adapt and create the opportunity based on what your opponent or your partner is doing in that situation. Well, I, I agree that this is, is key, but I would say that for me, number one is a psychological benefit, um, emotional benefit because when you train especially jiu-jitsu grappling you find yourself in very uncomfortable positions and i like to say that jiu-jitsu training in many ways teaches us to find comfort in uncomfortable situations and i'll give you some examples and actually that's one of the reasons why tournament training is different 
and actually doesn't allow us to practice this very principle or this approach. If you're training for, for a tournament, you have matches with time limits. If you're caught in a bad position, you're losing by points. Let's say somebody passes your guard, for example, and you're in bottom side mount. Somebody is on top of you, pinning you, immobilizing you. What do you have to do? Escape. Is there any other option? You if have you stay to stay there, you lose. If you stay there and time expires, you lose. On points. On points. So you learn to get out. And there are benefits, right? The drive, let's go, get out, get out. Sometimes you have to get out. Sometimes you... But sometimes you can't. Sometimes yes. you can't. And then what do you do? And the question is this. Are you putting yourself in that position when you're constantly training to get out and developing strength and, and working on, on so many different areas that you can work on physically to have the power, to have the skill, the technique to get out? Are you developing the ability to stay on the bottom and survive being on the bottom? And I compare that to swimming and, and, and being caught in a, in a riptide, right? What do you do? Shorkin, if you're caught in a riptide. Relax. Go with the flow. What if your coach from the sand, from the beach is saying, get out, come on, swim, swim against the tide. What's going to happen? I'm going to get out, but I'm going to have to relax first. And that's why the... No, but hold on. No. If he wants you to fight it, fight. Oh, you're going to die. Exactly. You're going to drown. <laughs> so we have to, and that going back to your question... We have to learn how to accept. I think that's huge. You learn that sometimes all you can do is accept. Accept. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to conform, that you're going to give up. Actually, the opposite. And, and to finalize my, my answer, let me ask you this. What would be easier or what would be harder to be left in the middle of the ocean. We're in Miami. We're actually very close to the beach right now. You get on a boat and you go all the way out to the point towards the Bahamas, to the point where you don't see the buildings anymore. And you're left in the middle of the ocean. And you're told that, I don't know when someone's going to come back to pick you up. Or somebody says, you know what, I'm going to come back in 10 hours. What's harder? It's harder if you know there's a time and you can it's wait for that. It's easier, sorry. You can wait for that. When you don't know, and going back Panic. to what you said earlier, the, the, the unknown, and the unknown in this respect is very much what we can go through emotionally and physically against our toughest opponent, which could be our own self, our mind. Yeah, Grandmaster Eddie used to talk a lot about this. And, and, and I think, so jujitsu saves us and teaches us how to cope with that. And in judo, we see that a lot because in judo there's a rule that if you pin someone for 20 seconds, you win the match. So you have to escape. And many times you can't escape. Many times you can't. You're just stuck, right? And what's, what does that prove? Like if you look at the Olympic Games, for example. Some guys would give their life for the gold medal and they get pinned and they're stuck. And they can't get out. So that's the point. Sometimes you can't get out. And what do you see a lot in judo competition? You guys watch a lot of judo. When the pin happens, they try to escape for the first 5, 10 seconds. What happens many times? The person on the bottom does what? They give up. They give up. They just quit. So it's either get out or quit. And that's not the best mindset. The best mindset is to understand that there is a time to escape and a time to wait. Sometimes you can't escape. So what do you do? You wait, but you stay ready. Because when the moment to escape comes, when the opportunity to escape comes, you take advantage of that. So I asked you a question. 
Joaquin talked about the importance of adaptability. Guy talked about the importance of discomfort management. I think these are extremely important. You want to know what Jigoro Kano thought? His answer? Kano states that the ultimate goal of Randori was to develop the ability to cope with rapidly changing circumstances. So that's similar to what Joaquin said. And to build a strong and supple body. So Jigoro Kano also felt that sparring was important for physical, as a form of physical exercise. Yeah, that's the difference between, in great part, again, I think it's very important, but I think it's one of the main differences between Jigoro Kano, who favored more throws and even talked a little bit about even striking, even though it was not part of competitive judo, with Elio Gracie. Right. Sometimes people say, wow, Elio Grace, you know, it's not realistic to just be on the bottom and to survive. That's not also self-defense. What else can you do? If you're trapped, what else can you do? And of course, not to mention what I just discussed as far as the emotional and psychological benefits. Yes. And, and, but just, you know, making a point on how I think Jigoro Kano agreed with what Guy said, you know, he talks about how this lesson is equally applicable in daily life and how the student will realize that how persuasion backed up with sound logic will always defeat brute strength. And, uh, you know, I basically said that sometimes you have to get out and Guy was basically talking about to stay there. And I believe that the best way for you to get out, like Pedro said, is only if you shake hands with the worst case scenario. If you're not able to shake hands with the ability to stay there for hours, for days, you know, I, I always like to use the comparison to when you see earthquakes. Sometimes they find people underneath buildings, underneath debris, with injuries, two, three days, four days after the earthquake. So, you know, just imagine what that person had to go through mentally being stuck underneath all that. There was no other option. To stay alive. To stay alive. They had to relax. They had to bring their heart rate down. They had to breathe. And uh, I think that jujitsu for everyone that has sparred and has had someone on top of them and just holding them, you know the feeling of you know, how that can be hard and how you can develop on that. And, and judo, for example, uh, we practice judo. We really like judo. But judo, the rules of judo kill that with that 30 second or 25 second um, pin rule like Pedro said and, and jiu-jitsu as well now I, I see to, to, today some jiu-jitsu practitioners their guard is passed and they just turn yeah. they just turn to their knees even in MMA, you see people MMA. turning. MMA, and and again, we're not criticizing that. Yeah, no, one because time. the circumstances those, call those for that. Those are the rules, but that changes the essence of the art. One time, I was talking to a very, very well-known jiu-jitsu master, and he told me, "I don't believe in Elio Grace's style of defending from the bottom mount. I don't want my students to ever get mounted. I teach them not to allow anybody to mount them." I don't teach him how to defend from the mount. That came from a master of jiu-jitsu. I, I don't teach my students mount defense. I teach them not to get mounted. What if you get mounted? You can't say that you're never going to get mounted. And so that's the difference. Now, my answer would be to develop jiu-jitsu. That's why we spar. What is jiu-jitsu? Yielding. The art of yielding. So our instinctive reaction, maybe I shouldn't call it instinctive, but what we've developed when we are adults especially, not true for children, but for adults, is to resist. Anytime someone pushes us, we resist. Anytime somebody pulls us, we resist. Because of ego. Because of ego and because... Fear. It's fear, ego. But we resist. And we don't even think. We just, we just resist. It's automatic. Well, resistance is important. Well, but Jew means the opposite of resistance. Right? It means to yield. Well, it, means, it means, let me just finish my answer and then you, yeah. you can give your, your point of view. And the thing is that 
Grandmaster Hélio emphasized descontração muscular. What does that mean? Relaxing your muscles. So when somebody pushes you, you use that energy to your advantage. So that's my advice for students when they spar. The most important thing is to learn flow, is to learn to minimize resistance, muscular resistance. When someone pushes you, avoid pushing back. Base, the concept of base. We believe in a base that is mobile, not a base that is rigid. Resist as hard as you can. You can still limited. resist with mobility. If yeah. someone's trying to invade the building, we're yeah. going to resist. Yeah, and I think Pedro made that point muscular. when he said muscular resistance. And even though sometimes you might need... Muscular. And even Jigoro Kano talks to everything. Yeah, Jigoro Kano talks about that too. Sometimes another expression of jujitsu is focusing all your energy on one specific area or on one specific movement. But I still think that when we talk to students, that's the way I talk to students, in order not to create confusion... They already have plenty of resistance. That's how they come in. So I tell them, the objective... Muscular resistance. Muscular resistance. The objective of sparring is to learn how to deal with pressure, with resistance in a relaxed way. To flow. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of semantics and we're talking a little bit about the definition of resistance. And I think when you say muscular resistance, of course, we understand what you're trying to, to mean but what I was going to say is that you know resisting temptations resisting well, an attack resisting uh, uh, you know uh, you know any type of, of situation that is that is um, intended to hurt you and muscular resistance yes good Very good we could continue for another hour easily I had even some topics here that we did not cover but maybe we can uh, do a part two do a part two once again, if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, please let us know. Uh, it's very important that you comment, that you like our videos, that you subscribe to, to our channels on YouTube and on the different um, podcast platforms. And thank you so much. Any final words? Yes, as Guy said, we love your feedback. And if you enjoyed this, share. Share with your friends. And hopefully this podcast can continue to grow. Thank you so much for watching our podcast. Thank you very much, everyone. And I hope to have another one even better very soon. Thank you.